Although geothermal energy doesn't have anywhere near the market penetration that solar and wind do, California's recent procurement order and a growing appetite for non-weather dependent renewable energy are quickly changing that. I'm Andrew Burns, reporter for NPM, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Jewett, Director of Strategy at geothermal development company Fervo Energy. To learn more about the selling points and challenges of geothermal energy and how these shifting market appetites may make it one of the key renewable energy technologies moving forward. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Andrew. It's an honor to have you. And um, I know that uh, we had a kind of a, a mutual contact through through Ormat, actually, and they they wanted to uh, sort of spread the the word of geothermal. I did an interview with with Paul, uh, which you know you can read on the site. But um, you know, I, I think uh, geothermal topic makes for a really good podcast because it's something that. I think a lot of people are eager to learn more about and uh, you know that's I guess one of the things that podcasts can do is just inter- introduce people to new ideas and, and uh, new concepts new technologies and so um, calling geothermal new is maybe not entirely correct but uh, it, it's new to a lot of people um, so we're going to go a little bit into geothermal today and and learn about what's going on in the market and some things that uh, Sarah's working on some things that uh, are on the horizon for, for geothermal. Um, but to start things off, Sarah, if you would just uh, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got today. Sure. Um, let's see. My name is Sarah Jewett. I'm the director of strategy for Fervo Energy. And my whole career has not been spent in renewables, actually. I was trained as a mechanical engineer and started my career in the oil and gas industry, where I was running hydraulic fracturing crews for Schlumberger based out of Rock Springs, Wyoming. And that was a job I, I really, really loved and spent about four years doing that before moving on to go back to graduate school. I got my master's of business and then um, did another short stint in oil field service where I worked in corporate development and finance roles. And then met Tim Latimer and was really compelled by the vision that he was painting of geothermal for the future and and came to work for Burbo. And so far, let's see, I've been here about a year. And so far, it has been a a truly exciting ride. And I've learned a ton. And I really am looking forward to talking about geothermal today. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it as well. Tell me a little bit about uh, Fervo Energy and kind of the things that you have had been working on there over the last year and, and just kind of the things that you've learned. Sure. So Ferva is a geothermal energy developer and we're based out of Houston, Texas with a satellite office in San Francisco. Um, the company was founded in 2017 by Tim Latimer and Dr. Jack Norbeck, who basically had a hypothesis that as climate change worsened, more people would turn their attention sort of beyond intermittent renewables and focus more and more on firm and even dispatchable clean power. Um, So they held that hypothesis and also that there was a pretty substantial dearth of technology transfer between the oil and gas industry and the geothermal energy industry. So the geothermal industry, as you said, is not new at all. It's been around since 1950s, but, um, you know, as the shale boom happened in the U.S. over the last couple of decades, there has been enormous technology innovation on the drilling and completion side of things in oil and gas, and very, very little of that had actually transferred to the geothermal energy industry. So a lot of our team actually used to work in oil and gas, and 
um, has pretty you know, technical expertise in oil and gas and subsurface sciences. So um, we found that innovation to be pretty transferable to the geothermal industry. Um, and the hypothesis of course has come true as we'll discuss today on people focusing beyond intermittent renewables, which are definitely playing their part, but there is, is huge focus today on firm and dispatchable zero emissions electricity and power as well. Yeah, and I think you're right. It does make a for a natural bridge to go from oil and gas to to geothermal um, from the outside looking in at the very least. Um, and it's also interesting that that Fervo is is based in Houston. Now, I haven't been to Houston in a few years. I do live in Texas, as people know. Um, but could you kind of talk to me a little bit about what the like what the atmosphere is is like in in Houston? Because Houston has always been such an energy city, right? I mean, that's just kind of its bread and butter. Um, how are things evolving uh, down in Houston as, as, you know, obviously the Texas grid and just, uh, you know, the, I guess, um, the capacities at large and, and what people are investing in are changing? Yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about there. And I think just the economy of Houston, Texas is something that a number of us, including Tim and myself, are, are very passionate about because historically it has been the energy capital of the United States, but it's been very, very heavily focused in fossil fuels. Um, that said, Houston is actually making some incredible strides towards embracing clean energy transition and, and making sure that it is a leader of clean energy transition. And, you know, there's, there's actually so much exciting stuff happening in Houston between, you know, the climate pledge from the mayor's office and Greentown Labs opening their second facility. Right. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the Gulf Coast area from a refining perspective is an enormous, you know, place for renewable energy transition in that I think it's something like 60% of the hydrogen that's used in the U.S. is used actually in the Gulf Coast. And so when you see all of this attention being drawn to hydrogen, Houston is an incredible place for a lot of innovation to happen on that front. And, you know, you, you brought up the grid, I think, as extreme, we start to see more and more extreme weather events and an increasing focus on climate change. Texas is, is an incredible place to consider where we can take this clean energy transition and how we can, you know, use existing expertise in the oil and gas industry to make sure that Texas is really a leader of a, of a transition. Yeah, definitely. So, um, tell me, like, is there anything in particular that, uh, that you guys are working on at Fervo that you want to highlight, or maybe some just developments that you guys have, have closed recently? I, I'm also curious about, um, kind of where you guys are, are doing business as a developer. Like, are you see, are you contracting with people in Texas? Are you, I know that there's kind of, we're going to talk about this later, sort of an appetite in the West for geothermal. Um, so kind of just talk about, uh, sort of what, where I guess your geographical focus is right now. Definitely. Um, our technology is pretty uniquely focused on quality of geologic, um, you know, subsurface conditions. And so because of that, you know, the best places for us to target today for development are actually in the West. So across Nevada, Utah, Idaho, New Mexico, California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii, those are sort of our key target markets at this point in time. You know, geothermal resource exists everywhere. It's just a question of how deep you have to drill to get to it. And 
The only reason that we're not focused on Texas in the most immediate future is because you have to drill substantially further down to get the similar heat resource that you would in Nevada or in Utah. And so Texas is not one of our, our top target markets today, but we hope to partner with people to develop solutions for Texas reliability in the future. Yeah, very good. Is it is it just because of all like the plate activity or whatever it is in the West? Like what is it that makes the uh, geothermal resource so rich there? Yeah, I mean, let me put my... <laughs> Geologist had on. I am definitely not qualified to talk about this, but we actually did have our first Fervo offsite a couple of weeks ago in. Um, oh, in cool. Yeah, and it was very cool because many of us had never met each other, mm-hmm. uh, and we, as part of that, took a geology field trip where our Fervo geologist led us around, and we looked at a lot of different things and talked about the Farallon plates subducting in the American West and how that created magmatic volcanism to create wow. the geologic conditions we're, we're seeking, but that's all I know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's basically, you know, the way that um, plate tectonics have occurred in the U.S. has just created a, a shallower, higher temperature resource in those states. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that's sort of the basis of, of the science that we're working on. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating to to think about. I mean, it's you know, there's just, I guess there's just like a lot, so much more to consider when it comes to geothermal than you know some of the other technologies that I'm used to reporting on. So uh, it's interesting to just kind of touch on that. Now, um, whenever I was speaking to Ormat and Paul, um, they were obviously touting this uh, project that they are they're doing a repowering on called Heber Two, where they're actually also doing a kind of a sort of like a what we cover all the time at NPM, which is like uh, RFPs, except for it's a request for bids for a PPA that they're hoping to to secure for that site, and I'm sure will very, very quickly. Um, so he mentioned that that was something that they wanted to do for other projects in, in their pipeline. Uh, so I was curious, as somebody else that works um, in, in geothermal, do you see that, is that something that that Fervo does as well, where they, they seek bidders for their projects or do is it a little more traditional where you know like you have a you know an off taker already you know you have that your off take agreement and then you go forward with the project or how how do these projects i guess find their partners as uh, as you develop them well i would say frankly that the answer to this question is evolving on a daily basis i mean if you if you look at the demand for geothermal energy the market demand has really changed mm. almost instantaneously over the last couple of months. As we've already touched on, this industry is not new. It's been around for a really, really long time, but there just hasn't been substantial demand, especially for you know this type of renewable energy beyond wind and solar. Now you've seen some incredible market factors recently that have totally changed that and turned it on its head, you know, with extreme weather events in California, with the retirement of Diablo Canyon, with the passage of some legislation like SB 100, which targets 100% renewable electricity for California, you recognize that the the landscape for geothermal, the the demand for geothermal is completely changing. Um, You know, today, I think the penetration of intermittents 
renewables on the grid in California is somewhere between 20 and 30%. And, you know, it is, it is often the case that California is completely powered by renewable energy in the middle of the day. Right. But where they are seeing challenges is at night when, Mm -hmm. you know, they're importing many fossil fuel resources from out of state and they're kicking on natural gas plants and things like that. And so when you see the retirement of Diablo Canyon in 2024, which is roughly two and a half gigawatts of firm clean power going off the grid, California is pretty desperate to replace that with renewable energy. And I'm using California as an example because they are truly the renewable energy leaders of of the US. Um, But you know, when you think about what are the solutions that are capable of meeting this need of evening and nighttime power, they're, they're sort of few and far between. You know, it's nuclear energy, which doesn't have the most popularity in the U.S. today and is, mm-hmm. has really long lead times and is pretty expensive. It's hydropower, which we're seeing ever more impacted by drought. You're right. It's biomass. It's geothermal. You know, it's battery solutions, but we're sort of, you know, still in a technology development life cycle there. So I think geothermal actually has an enormous role to play um, as grids experience greater and greater penetration of intermittent renewables. They will turn to firmer clean power solutions. And so because of that, I know I'm being long-winded in response to your answer, but because of that, um, and because of it surfacing so recently, all of a sudden people are turning to geothermal and saying, hey, you know, we would really actually like to bring on a greater percentage of geothermal in our portfolios. But that has not been a resounding tune that many load serving entities have been singing for the last, you know, 70 years as geothermal has been around. And so all of a sudden with the California Public Utilities Commission mandate for you know, a gigawatt of new firm clean power by 2026, which, you know, we can dig into more, yes. all of a sudden geothermal is, is totally hot. Yeah. yeah. No, no pun intended. And so it's interesting because the developers are also sort of few and far between and ORMAT is uniquely well situated to provide a lot of this demand. But I imagine that the knocks on ORMAT's door over the last, you know, three to 12 months probably have multiplied in an exponential way. Mm-hmm. And so if ORMAT is considering a repower of Huber 2, and you know, that's gonna take its capacity from 12 to, what is it, 12 to 26 megawatts. Yes. It makes a lot of sense for ORMAT to you know, go to the market and say, okay, yeah. you know, what are you guys willing to pay? Because right. so many people want it today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that we have done yet, but I do think that it's a very, very innovative solution to, you know, going out and finding which off-takers want the power the most. Yeah, I think it, it uniquely makes sense for, for geothermal just because of what you're talking about with the market environment where suddenly people, so many different um, groups and LSEs want it, right? And there's not as much of it to, you know, it's kind of a dime a dozen for solar and wind, right? So you don't really have to do it that way. You can just you know, in a year, you can just pop one up or there's plenty to choose from, right, that are being developed as it is. Whereas like, you know, it's space. And I think this is something that Paul kind of talked about in that story is like, people that are interested better get in now because space is going to be limited um, for the next little while. So that is like a really interesting uh, position that uh, that you find yourselves in. Um, I, and as I learn more about geothermal, I, I'm really interested in some of the specifics. So like, 
Um, the Hebrew project is going from 12 to 26. Is that like the standard size or like a normal size for a geothermal project? Do they get uh, bigger than that? Um, I'm kind of curious about just sort of like and sort of the scope of these these projects in terms of the power that they're outputting. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. The sizes of turbines that are on the market today are sort of limited, and part of that has just been because the industry has been small and slow growing. Um, so lots of times you're sort of limited in increments of stepping up your power plant size. That said, um, I would say the majority of plants on the market are, are you know, I, I would say 12 megawatts is sort of on the small end, but, you know, there aren't, there aren't a litany of 100 megawatt geothermal plants out there. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is due to the demand factors that we've been talking about. There just hasn't been the demand for geothermal. And I imagine as demand increases, people will sort of build bigger and bigger plants, but you're limited by the capacity of the resource. And right. so, and your access to transmission. And so, you know, it, it only makes so much sense if you've got a central plant, it only makes so much sense from a distance perspective to transport hot fluid to that plant. And so what, what tends to happen is people will create much smaller, more, more modular plants in a sort of dispersed fashion um, to be closer to the resource itself. Sure. Uh, That's interesting. So I'm also curious about um, just from a logistical perspective about like the, um, how, how, like what the cycle is for the development of a geothermal project. So like, you know, as people get so accustomed with solar and wind that obviously the the amount of time that it takes, depending on the project size, Mm -hmm. obviously, um, decreases, right, for how long it takes for the, the construction time. Whereas like when we're talking about offshore wind, obviously the, the length of time that's going to take to develop an offshore wind project is, is exponentially larger. Where does geothermal fall on that? Like how long does it take from like a project being, say, getting its permit to actually reaching its COD? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I actually should have mentioned this in the response about ORMAT's, you know, request for bids because development timeline for geothermal is not short. Yeah. It is oftentimes, I mean, 10 years, I think is the long end for the development cycle. Five years would be the short end. Okay. Now, a lot of that, so that when you're talking about a 10 year development timeline, you're talking about from the moment that you nominate a lease position for a lease sale. And so what happens is pretend like, you know, we're going to, start a geothermal development cycle, we would nominate our area of interest in Nevada and tell Nevada, hey, you know, we want to lease this specific piece of, you know, geothermal area. And then they will hold a lease sale sometime, you know, roughly 12 months after you nominate a parcel. And so development timeline starts all the way from when you're nominating that parcel through environmental assessment, through the whole lease process, and then there are various stages of environmental permitting you have to go through thereafter. Um, part of the reason that geothermal energy timelines are so long is because we do not benefit from any of the permitting streamlining or efficiencies that oil and gas does today. And so, you know, oil and gas um, oftentimes can perform one large scale environmental impact assessment for a single area of interest. And then as they move through their stages of exploration, development, construction, they can sort of build off of that existing environmental impact statement. 
Um, for geothermal energy, the environmental permitting is more involved at each step. And so you have to do a certain amount of environmental permitting for exploration, and you have to do it again for development, and you have to do it again for construction. And permitting timelines are pretty fickle and can sure. be very long. And so um, if you're talking about the development timeline from when you're drilling wells to constructing your power plant, if you eliminate permitting, it's a lot shorter. But permitting is a, is a pretty substantial um, piece of the development cycle for us. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Do you see that? I mean, obviously, it seems like, um, and this is kind of can be region based, I think it might even be state based where, like, obviously, oil and gas has gotten some of those simplifications where they don't have to, you know, maybe go through quite as many different steps, right. And uh, that's certainly been the case for wind and solar as well. Um, Do you see that happening for geothermal, especially now that there's all this interest? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we, I am, I am personally, and Paul, and a lot of us are spending a substantial amount of time on. Um, and one, one of our main advocacy efforts for the industry today is, you know, hey, there's huge demand for this now. In order to actually get these projects up and running, which is in line with many states' policy objectives and also the Biden administration's policy objectives, you know, hey, federal government, we need to work on the permitting process so that it's, you know, we have no desire to skirt any sort of permitting process. It's just wondering whether we can get on par with where solar and wind are today and where oil and gas is today from a categorical exclusion and permit streamlining perspective. And so it's something that we have flagged for the Department of the Interior and we've been talking to local Bureau of Land Management offices about. And um, I think we have you know, we are in the process of providing the educational materials required for those officials to understand why the industry would benefit so much from a little help on the permitting side. Um, and of course, you know, we're talking about federal leases only. We're not talking about um, private acreage, but this is really an enormous amount of geothermal potential sits underneath federal acres. And so, yeah, we're working with the federal government pretty pretty intensely today to make sure that, you know, we can get these, get these categorical exclusions extended to our industry. Okay. Very interesting. Well, so, it's so interesting to be able to, you know, talk about it at this stage, cause I'm sure that things are going to evolve so much, um, you know, over the next several years, over the next decade, certainly um, when it comes to, to geothermal. So that's, that's part of the reason why I was excited to, to do this uh, podcast. Uh, one last thing about the logistics of, of geothermal. Um, I'm curious about the kind of uh, investors that you guys get, like from like whether it's like traditional banks that are that will help with financing or whether it's like more specific than that. Like, for instance, obviously with uh, solar and wind at this point, um, it, all banks are like all in. Right. Like it, it's very easy to secure um, a debt loan or construction loan. Um, it, tax equity gets a little dicier, but that's not obviously anything that uh, geothermal has to worry about right now. Um, so, where, like, what kind of uh, companies are, are investing in geothermal, and do you see that shifting um, with all this new interest? Another great question. Yes, is the answer. It's definitely shifting. Um, I think you can think about it like we're sort of an industry that is similar to shale at the beginning Mm. of shale, you know, investors understand 
how, how the industry works. They understand that you drill an injector well and a, produ a producer well. They understand that you can construct a surface facility and you offload the power, that there are a number of different ways you can get that electricity created. Um, but, you know, they don't totally understand how the industry is evolving. Mm. Um, it has been, you know, it has experienced such slow growth over a period of time that, you know, new investors who are looking for other alternative energy investments that are not solar and wind oftentimes are having a little bit of a hard time understanding that there is some um, exploration risk associated when you are entering new reservoirs, sure. um, which is something that is very typical for the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, when, when EOG entered South Texas, basically, when they were, you know, starting to explore the Eagleford, they didn't know, you know, as much, obviously, as they know today about what was below the surface in the Eagleford. And so they had to drill some exploration wells and try to design for what they knew. Now they're on a continuous drilling program in the Eagleford. It's very easy for them. They understand exactly what the field looks like. It's usually well characterized. Um, and that's something that's you know hard for us to convey in our industry that we are going to have to experience a very similar exploration driven learning curve. And so from an investment perspective, those investors who are interested in the industry start to finish sort of evolves over time. At the beginning, they have to be investors who are very comfortable with this idea of exploration risk. And we have seen today, not a ton of appetite for that across any financial organization. Um, but once a company has proven out a reservoir and characterized it to some extent, there are plenty of people who are pretty familiar with drilling and completions and subsurface um, activity that they're willing to fund sort of like a continuous drilling program. Okay. Um, and, and those are more, you know, people who are, who are used to investing in oil and gas, private equity investors, um, you know, family offices, those types. And then you find that once you have some very successful well testing results and you've shown that our wells are working and that we're going to be able to produce power from these wells, it gets a lot less risky. And there are are a you know, greater number of investors who are willing to fund a power plant construction or something like that. Sure. Um, and so I think you know, over time, as, as you de-risk a project, the investor landscape definitely changes. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's, there's so much. It's, uh, I think that lengthy amount of time also is probably like a challenge because- hundred percent. Yeah, because like- uh, you know, investors want a quick return on investment, right? Whereas, and like with a solar project, it's pretty, you know, it's a lot quicker, right? And, and a lot more widespread. So I can see how, yeah, that would be one of the, certainly one of the challenges and something that would obviously evolve over the, the life of, you know, getting a project you know, ready. Yeah. Um, so that is really I mean, interesting. The impact yeah. of permitting risk on bankability is an enormous issue for us. Sure. And yeah. so I think, you know, a couple of things need to happen. One, we need to fix permitting to where we're on par with other renewables in oil and gas. You know, two, we need to get investors comfortable with the idea that once we've started exploring, we can characterize a reservoir very quickly. Um, and three, that this industry is going to grow a lot, a lot faster and be, you know, a lot more popular than it has been in, future, in the past. So 
Um, that's something too. It's like in, any investor you talk to will say, oh, I've been burned by a geothermal deal in the past. And I think what we've, what we've tried to convey to them is that this time is different because we actually have the demand pressure on us to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that makes a huge difference for sure. <laughs> um, well, you know, another thing that I actually am curious about now that we're kind of, we're talking about how obviously geothermal has been around for a long time and, and uh, you know, suddenly there's all this interest. What about the technology for geothermal? Has that changed? Uh, I would imagine that that has evolved also over time from like, you know, you're talking about the origins in the 50s um, and to where it is now. I would imagine that the the plants themselves, the technology making them up um, has evolved. Is that something that has happened or is happening? Or uh, yeah, what's the situation there in terms of uh, the technology going into this? Absolutely. There have been both surface and subsurface evolution of technology. They are both contributing to the viability of geothermal going forward. Um, from a subsurface perspective, I would just say, you know, if you look at the oil and gas industry and the EIA's productivity increases over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, just the, just the increase in drilling efficacy has just skyrocketed. And that will trickle into the geothermal energy industry and be hugely impactful. Um, from a surface perspective, you know, the, the, the invention of the binary cycle power plant, which basically makes it so that you can recirculate your geothermal working fluid, which is just water back into your reservoir. Mm. You know, the flash, the flash power plant vented all of the working fluid to atmosphere. And so you had huge replacement water volumes that you needed in order to make it work. Um, a binary cycle power plant can operate at a lower temperature and it recirculates the water back into the reservoir. And because of that, you know, it has created, it is, it has created this zero emissions electricity and also, you know, um, made it so that we can conserve water right. in our, in our plants today. So that is, and I, I think you would, you would see that the majority of power plants being constructed today in geothermal are binary cycle power plants. And so, um, you know, advancements in orga organic rank and cycle organic rank and cycle technology, mm. um, power plant technology and subsurface expertise is huge. And then you know, there's this whole category of startups inventing new approaches to geothermal development, which is fascinating and super interesting to watch everything from, you know, closed loop to downhole heat exchangers that are different to different types of drilling. All of that is really, really interesting and, and somewhat futuristic. But today, I think the technology has evolved in such a way that geothermal is, is really ready to play in the big leagues. Very interesting. That's good to hear. Um, so speaking of playing in the big leagues, now we have this, which you touched on earlier, this, uh, these requirements that the CPUC is putting on uh, the LSEs. And so it's like 11.5 gigs um, in general, right, of, of renewable energy. And I think that can include storage and there's like all this stuff that that encompasses. But it's that last gig that I, can, I think it's by the end of 2026 or 2026 is the year that they, that it's slated for, for sure where they almost describe geothermal energy without saying it, right? Like they say, it's got to, can't, it's renewable energy, can't be weather dependent, can't, it has to be generating, so it can't, therefore can't be storage. Um, it has to have a certain amount of uh, efficiency or whatever the words they have. Um, yeah, yeah, sure, capacity factor. Yeah, that's right. And then, so I, I remember reading through that. I remember, you know, I was one of the, obviously I was uh, reporting on this story as soon as it broke. 
And I remember reading through that and I don't think, you know, I, I certainly didn't know as much about geothermal now then as I did now, as I do now, but I remember reading through that and I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and then after I uh, started, I, I got in touch with Ormat and talked with Paul. I was like, oh, this is it. This is what they were describing. Um, so it's so uh, like I, my initial question was like how it fits in with those requirements. It's almost seems like geothermal is the only option. Like what, what else could fill that role that, uh, you know, they're laying out for these LSEs there? Yeah, I'm really glad that's how you're interpreting it. I think <laughs> that's how the geothermal energy industry is interpreting it. Yeah. Um, you know, in draft one, it was a thousand megawatts set aside for geothermal. Interesting. So they actually spelled and it out in draft one. Indeed. Okay. And there was a lot of pushback um, across different types of entities that if you had a set aside for geothermal, the geothermal energy industry was going to have, you know, significant pricing power. And not only that, the development timelines were too long and um, there weren't enough geothermal projects in the interconnection queue and, and all of these things. And, you know, our argument was kind of like, yeah, we haven't had the demand. So there are, you know, fewer geothermal projects in the interconnection queue than solar and wind projects. It makes a ton of sense. Um, but it's really geothermal that can fulfill that one gigawatt set aside. Uh, biomass can also fill it. Okay. Biomass is more expensive than we are today, but sure. um, we hope to obviously see advancements in biomass that make them a uh, a compelling competitor for that gigawatt. That said, it really, really is a geothermal targeted set aside. Um, and actually since, since the um, procurement mandate came out, there has just been a huge uptick in, yeah. in interest from various different load serving entities across California. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. It's fascinating because it really wasn't that long ago when they made that announcement. It was, you know, just seems like just a month a couple months ago that they that they made that procurement uh June 22nd uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, so yeah exactly so like was that something that um I, and I talked a little bit with Paul about this was that something that um it's I guess it kind of sounds like something that the industry the geothermal industry was sort of pushing for um through geothermal rising and and everything uh so what like were you targeting California because California has obviously the need for additional capacity and it just, I guess it just kind of makes sense because it has that capacity need and it's apparently where a lot of the great resources um, for geothermal. So is that why you were targeting California first? I would say it was a bit of a, I, I wouldn't say that we selected California. Okay. You know, the California Public Utilities Commission recognized along with California Energy Commission and the governor's office, okay, wow, you know, we might have a problem. Yeah. If we retire this big nuclear power plant, if we want to achieve SB 100, you know, they passed other legislation, SB 1090, that said that greenhouse gas emissions in California cannot go up upon retirement of Diablo Canyon. And so I think they sort of started to recognize, especially as a result of August 2020 extreme weather events, that we might have a problem if we don't start 
being a little bit more explicit about what needs to happen with our grid mix going yeah. forward. And so um, really the process arose and as a result of the process arising, which was, you know, California Public Utilities Commission in February of 2020 saying, hey, everybody come to the table. We're going to figure out how to solve this problem together. Um, I'm new to regulatory processes. And I think that, you know, it was it was a hugely interesting process to partake in. Sure. But um, once they set the stage, geothermal rising and ORMAT and FERVO and all of our friends at, you know, CERT and all of these different organizations said, okay, we're going to weigh in and say, hey, you know, this is something that we can provide in a shorter lead time than nuclear energy that we can substantially complement your grid with. And so I think the Public Utilities Commission really heard that. In other states in the West, you know, I, I would say California is a true leader. Yeah. They have they adopted 100% clean electricity standard before anyone else, and people are following them. They have brought more wind and solar onto their grids than others, and people are following them. They have been hugely instrumental in the offshore wind initiatives. Um, and we really believe that, you know, I, I don't even know how many states is it with 100% decarbonization um, goals now. It is more than nine. Yeah, it's growing fast. I, I, I wanted yeah. that. I I've been doing a lot of coverage in Washington lately, and the, people are kind of scrambling up there. A lot of the utilities are scrambling because uh, not only do they have a 100% carbon reduction goal, they have to retire all their coal by 2025, which is quick, right? And so a lot of the utilities are that have like you know at least you know like there was one that I was covering last week that has about 750 megawatts of coal and that I think they're on the smaller end they're on the lower end of, of mm. coal resources and like they're all like scrambling obviously to like figure out what they're going to replace that stuff with so they're totally doing, yeah so they're doing RFPs left to right um so that's been a big uh, thing that I've been covering re recently but yeah I think I think uh the, the states that have those those sort of targets are are growing and they're growing fast yeah and they're I think eventually, or maybe eventually is now in the near term, they'll look at California and say, okay, how did California navigate actually getting their grid up to snuff? And then they'll try to follow similar pathways. Hopefully they'll try to learn from where California made mistakes. Um, yes. So I just think, man, California has been such a great, a great leader and advocate for clean energy. Um, but I do think that even they are a little bit slow with the legislation they've passed, with the retirements that they have in the pipe. You know, Governor Governor Newsom, wonderful leader that he is, said, yeah. you know, what can we do to get geothermal on by 2022? And it's like, well, you know, this is not an instantaneous process. We would love it if it were an instantaneous process, but it's not. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of regulatory reform that needs to happen to make sure we can shorten our development timelines and, and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of interesting how fast they're kind of trying to move now. It seems like in, in California, ever since I guess what happened in August, like uh, it seems like there's been a lot of scrambling there also just to try to bring out as much as, as they can. So it makes sense that geothermals a big part of that. Um, do you think, you know, we talk about other States following suit. Do you think that other States will eventually, I mean, obviously they're already following suit in terms of uh, setting these, these carbon reduction goals, but do you think they'll follow suit in terms of actually spelling out, we need this amount of, you know, geothermal or this amount of non-weather dependent energy as California has done? Because they're the first that I've seen do take that step. So do you think that that's something that other states may follow suit as well? 
It's a great question. I, I think it sort of depends on how things play out. Sure. Um, this one, one gigawatt mandate will add so much fire to our industry. And geothermal has historically been a pretty bad chicken and egg problem where mm. the demand is low. So the developers are few and the developers that do exist can't really come down a substantial drilling learning curve or a substantial manufacturing learning curve. And so geothermal has stayed pretty expensive. But when you see a one gigawatt mandate come across the table, you know, all of a sudden the industry has an opportunity to actually develop continuous drilling programs, to actually get manufacturers to the U.S. who are thinking about different sizes of turbines. Um, you know, so I, I think that the landscape is really, really set for the cost of geothermal to come down. And if the cost of geothermal comes down, you may not need as much of an explicit set aside for geothermal. Gotcha. You know, if people recognize that solar plus storage at a large scale is the same cost as geothermal, you know, it's no longer necessary for them to say, oh, we want to procure this amount of geothermal energy. They're just going to say, you know, we want our load serving entities to procure renewables. And all of a sudden geothermal is cost competitive. Yeah. Um, so perhaps they'll start focusing more on capacity factor the way that California is today. Um, and geothermal will just seem a really good solution. Yeah, right on. Um, okay, so another thing that is just seems to be like a growing issue, and this isn't related to geothermal, it's related to everybody, is grid congestion, right? Um, like how big of a problem is that right now for you? And like just in terms of the, the industry at large and how, like, what are we going to do about that? Right? Like how, how are we going to resolve that issue? Because um, it sounds like it's like, especially like over the time that I've been covering the industry, it has grown so much in that and how much people are talking about it and looking at it and realizing this is a problem. Yeah, it's uh it is such a big problem. And frankly, I'm not an expert beyond knowing that it's going to be a huge problem. I mean, I think, I think California, when mandating 11 and a half new gigawatts of renewables, you know, unless they truly believe they can build 11 and a half gigawatts completely within the state, within their timeline, um, they're going to recognize that long range transmission is a huge issue. Um, and, you know, they're focused on it today. There's a huge interagency focus on transmission planning for the near and medium term. Um, but it is, it is tough. I mean, some of our best geothermal acreage positions are sort of limited by access to transmission or capacity on transmission lines that come by. And, you know, if you're looking to bid into an RFP in California, there are certain delivery points that you have to get to. And if you can't get to them, then your geothermal project is sort of moot. So, and it can increase the cost of transport pretty substantially. Sure, sure. And so one, it may not exist. Two, it may be cost prohibitive. I think that transmission is going to be, you know, well, I say is going to be. Transmission is a huge focus right now, not only the federal government, but also states as well. Yeah, is that something, so I guess this is a good transition to sort of talk about geothermal rising and, and the work that's going on uh, there. Um, and then, you know, if transmission folds into that, then so be it. Uh, but tell me about uh, geothermal rising and, and kind of uh, what its goals are and sort of what you, what you guys are, are looking at these days. 
Yeah, geothermal rising um, is is this you know totally wonderful and fast growing organization as well. And I'm pretty new to the organization. I only joined in in January, and I sit on the policy committee with Paul. And um, you know, fortunately, he has allowed me to sort of come up my own learning curve with geothermal as part of the policy committee. But the policy committee has really laid out what are the main, you know, the biggest impediments to large scale geothermal development today. And we really try to stand not only for utility scale electricity production, but also direct use and geothermal heat pumps. Um, and we have a number of people on the policy committee who represent those technologies as well. And so we have tried to compile what are the biggest impediments today and how can we approach those impediments as you know, an industry group to say, hey, this would represent us all and benefit us all. And how can we educate lawmakers to understand why it's important to put geothermal on a level playing field with other renewables? And so I think, um, you know, as the Biden administration has, has shown a greater interest in the industry um, and also just in general, what are solutions that we can use to put on our grid to increase resiliency? Um, they have shown a pretty a pretty serious um, appetite for education from the space. And so I think Geothermal Rising is working really, really hard to do a ton of outreach and say, this is why geothermal is important. These are what our development timelines are. This is how permitting increases, you know, uh, streamlining permitting can help us. This is how appropriations increases can help us. This is how putting us on a level playing field from an ITC, PTC perspective with wind and solar can help us. Mm. Um, and so it has been a pretty busy year for geothermal risings policy committee. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's just a really, a really hardworking group of people that even though we all work for different companies are all swimming in the same direction on, on a unique set of priorities. Yeah, for sure. And it's really, I think it's good that you guys have that strong base because it is obviously critical. That's how, you know, we got movement in, in solar and wind and these other technologies. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how things evolve and, and sort of, uh, you know, the, what work you guys accomplished there. And I'll certainly be interested in, in keeping in touch on, on that kind of thing on the policy front. Um, so the, the goal we had here was to sort of talk at length about geothermal energy in the market and sort of address all the various areas that uh, geothermal encompasses. Um, I think we have done a pretty good job of that, but um, you know, you're in the industry. So uh, is there anything else that we haven't touched on or that, you know, you think, um, whether it's something that is going on in the industry at large or whether it's uh, something that Fervo is working on specifically that, uh, that you want to touch on? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I would say, and I sort of touched on it earlier, when we talk to investors today or various stakeholders, um, many of them take the approach that, you know, oh, we've been burned by geothermal in the past and oh, it's not a real industry and you know, why, why is it interesting today? And, and I think where we get frustrated is, you know, in lack of understanding that it is a totally different time, you know, with climate change as such a central focus, decarbonization legislation, so widespread, the federal government talking about how, you know, they can increase their activity in order to ease climate change. I just think there's a completely different market landscape. And so before, when a geothermal group would take, you know, investment dollars and go try to prove out a field, 
it was it was often the case that they sort of like didn't really have the firepower to really lean in to their drilling program and and actually prove out either their technology or come down the learning curve. And so, you know, when you look at oil and gas groups that were able to drill 14 or 16 wells in a new in a new geologic area before they actually built a continuous and sustainable drilling program, you know, geothermal definitely has not gotten that amount of space and leeway. And I'm not saying that we need it. I think with the expertise that has been developed in shale gases drilling world, I think we're going to be able to use a lot of that expertise and actually have greater success rates earlier on in geothermal than shale saw. But, you know, with technology innovation from, from the shale revolution and the market demand, it is just a completely different and very unique point in time. And I think, you know, if, if Fervo and Ormat lead the way and show that geothermal is, you know, going to be cost competitive with other renewables, especially as you add storage on top, great. But I think even if we don't do it, other geothermal energy companies will come in and, and prove that this is a sustainable and continuous industry that should at least be shown that, you know, similar regulatory treatment as other renewables and viewed as, as a main and viable renewable energy for the U.S. And so, you know, I think that that's a message that we're, we're trying to get out on a broad scale, that this is just a different time and give us a little patience and we'll figure out how to make geothermal a huge player. Right on. Uh, well, Sarah, thanks again. It's been it really been an honor to, to have you on the podcast and to learn so much about what's going on in this quickly evolving market that's going to be really interesting, really critical um, going forward, particularly in the West. But uh, we'll see, you know, kind of what Paul was talking about with that that sort of eastward expansion from the West eventually for geothermal. And it's gonna be really interesting to track that over the coming years. Uh, definitely wanna stay in touch in terms of what's going on, on the policy front, in terms of things that Fervo is working on, um, in terms of uh, the progress being made toward filling that 1000 uh, megawatts that has to be filled in California. And I'm looking forward to uh, discussing all of that with you uh, in the future. So thanks again. Oh, thanks Andrew.